welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, episode four, The Rush Before the Rush. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Last episode, we ended with Lion George Carmack, faced with skeptical miners in 40 Mile, pouring out the gold from his new discovery on the counter in a saloon. The greatest gold rush in the history of the world was on. In future episodes, we'll tell you how people outside, from bank clerks to farm boys, were galvanized into heading for the Klondike. But the effect was even more instant in 40 Mile. These people had been looking for gold and waiting for the big one for years. They knew what to do. Carmack and Kagooks were not taken seriously when they first arrived in 40 Mile. By the way, Quiche, also known as Skookum Jim, had stayed back on what we'll now call Discovery Claim to keep an eye on things, since there were literally dozens of other prospectors wandering over the Klondike district. None of the men who wrote down various versions of the story seem to have bothered recording where Chatla was during all this. The miners generally viewed Carmack as unreliable, hence his nickname, Lion George, and knew he was not a serious miner. Moreover, racism was rampant, and Carmack's close association with First Nations people was looked down on. There was no denying the gold on the counter, however, and Forty Mile emptied of its around 500 inhabitants nearly overnight. According to William Ogilvie, the Canadian government surveyor on hand when it happened, quote, The town was almost deserted. Men who had been in a chronic state of drunkenness for weeks were pitched into boats as ballast and taken up to stake themselves a claim, and claims were staked by men for their friends who were not in the country at the time. Like the even larger number of outside gold seekers who had set out once the word reached them, the prospectors scrambling the 40-plus miles upstream to the Klondike were going to discover that others were much closer to discovery. In fact, on August 19th, just three days after Quiche, Carmack, and the party had found gold on Rabbit Creek, now called Bonanza, a prospector named Monahan and his friends staked claims three miles lower down on the creek. The next day, four claims were staked about two miles below. Ogilvy reported a miners' meeting on August 22nd in this area, where 25 miners showed up. Ogilvy figured there were probably 50 miners in the general area, and calculated that, given the number of miles involved and how slow it was to travel through the Klondike bush and swamps, these miners didn't hear about the creek from Carmack and his friends. It therefore seems that the answer to the question, who discovered the Klondike goldfields, is, in fact, lots of people around the same time. The prospectors began staking immediately. And, of course, there were disputes. In accordance with the old tradition, some called a miners' meeting. There were strong feelings among some miners, especially American ones used to the more freewheeling ways in Alaska, that the Canadian government, sometimes referred to as the British or English authorities since the British flag was still flown, the police wore redcoats, and there was general confusion on the creeks as to the constitutional status of Canada and the British Empire at the time, that the Canadian government was too bureaucratic, restricted the size of claims too much, and charged outrageous fees. This miners' meeting decided that a survey should be organized and that the creek should be renamed Bonanza. On the survey, they got a 50-foot rope and began measuring from discovery on down. There was considerable controversy about this survey, and Ogilvy, who as the official Canadian government surveyor would arrive later to sort out the mess, reported that he interviewed 17 of the 25 men present and 13 of them under oath, but never could figure out where the rope came from or even if anyone had actually measured it to make sure it was 50 feet long. Since good prospects had been found on Discovery and the claim two miles down that would become number 16 below, 
everyone wanted the land in between those two points. So they divided it into claims and agreed to allocate them by drawing from a hat. The men present put their names in, and it seems like they put more names in too. You know, for a friend who isn't there at the moment but is just around the corner. This, of course, was a big no-no. Now, the rope might have turned out to be a bit short, since the survey ended up with a larger number of smaller claims. They resized Carmack's discovery claim to 450 and a half feet. Carmack's bonus claim, number one below, ended up 447 feet. Carmack himself hadn't even had a rope to measure his claims originally. He just measured them by pacing the number of steps. The, quote, surveyors, unquote, did more than 50 claims that day. And remember, it was a long summer day with light to midnight and longer. One fellow had already staked a claim around 12 below, but it conflicted with their survey and they moved him four miles downstream to 50 below. However, this man had already sold his claim at 12 below to a syndicate of four who would shortly discover what they had bought had been randomly moved four miles. Monaghan, the miner who staked independently just two days after discovery, was friendly with the wives of the Northwest Mounted Police officers at 40 Mile, plus the wife of one of the merchants. And Monaghan decided it would be nice if he made claims for them too. The mining recorder at 40 Mile okayed these claims, although the local miners' meeting men disagreed. Confusion was everywhere. Here's how Ogilvy described it. The miners' meeting men, quote, though they were not opposed to locating absentee men, that means giving claims to friends who weren't there, as there is good reason to suspect was done, and moving one man, as we have seen, from his own location and placing on another four miles away, were opposed to absentee women being recognized, contrary to the spirit of chivalry we see so often attributed to the minor in stories. So they promptly jumped the claims, staked by Monaghan for the ladies, and, as a warning to all future transgressors like him, jumped his own location also. They then sent a deputation to the agent at 40 Mile, and by misrepresentation to him, as he alleged, induced him to give official sanction and approval to their acts, unquote. With so much gold on the line, all of this meant big trouble. The official agent of the Canadian government at 40 Mile was overwhelmed, and, if you read between the lines of Ogilvy's reports, was making things worse by agreeing to certify whatever tall tale happened to show up in his official log cabin in 40 Mile. Ogilvy was a Canadian government official and a real surveyor, but he was not officially in charge of gold claims. Rather, he was tasked with other jobs, such as marking the Canada-U.S. border. In fact, he was waiting at 40 Mile for further instructions. The Canadian and U.S. governments were negotiating a joint commission to define the border from the Pacific to the Arctic Ocean, and Ogilvy was supposed to wait for instructions, as well as more staff and surveying equipment. Then, in the last mail of the year, which arrived not too long after the gold strike at Discovery, Ogilvy received word that the Canada-U.S. negotiations had failed, and he was ordered to return to Ottawa, quote, with all possible dispatch. He dutifully packed up and prepared for the trip, which meant, quote, constant physical effort for 25 to 35 days, making one's way against the strong current of the Yukon and over the Dai Chilkoot Pass to the sea, unquote. Then, according to Ogilvy, on the day of his departure, they were hit with the biggest rain and windstorm he had ever seen. It lasted three days. Then, there was a blizzard that dumped nearly a foot of snow on the ground, by October 3rd, the river was running with ice and his chance to travel upriver to the coast was finished for the year. Now, lots of people ignore the occasional email from their boss. 
And that's even when it doesn't involve leaving a massive surveying mess that's likely to lead to endless controversy, court cases, and possibly violence in order to spend a month slogging up river in the wilderness just to get to a port, after which the steamship and railway trip to Ottawa might take another month. This is just speculation, of course. But the way Ogilvy goes into detail about that September storm preventing his trip might give you the idea he wasn't too unhappy about having a good excuse to stay in the Yukon. In early October, the Sternwheeler steamer Arctic made a run up the river to the bustling camp emerging where the Klondike River joins the Yukon, the place soon to be world-famous as Dawson City. The Arctic had struggled upstream against the growing ice flowing against it, carrying critical supplies for the winter along with 80 passengers. These passengers were late compared to the 50 miners in the bush around Discovery in August and the roughly 500 people of 40 Mile who arrived in the following month, but well ahead of the millions outside who hadn't even heard of the strike yet. As of November 20th, 338 claims had been staked around Bonanza, and 150 more were being processed. In January 1897, Ogilvy arrived on the scene in Dawson and began laying out the town site and preparing an official survey of Bonanza Creek and its rich tributary creek called El Dorado. By January, prospectors arriving late from Circle City downstream or elsewhere were discovering that there were no more unclaimed claims on either Bonanza or El Dorado. Ogilvy soon got to work. In addition to the ramshackle amateur survey done after the miners' meeting, the miners were creative in how they marked their boundaries. Practically nobody followed the official procedures which involved posts at least three feet high and at least three inches square at the top, with lines cut through the bush and details such as name, date, and post number written in durable pencil or carved into the wood. Ogilvy said the standard procedure for most miners was to, quote, select a tree, knock a bit of bark off it, and then proceed to write or scratch on it something like this. I claim 500 feet upstream or downstream for mining purposes, unquote. Since they often selected a sturdy spruce tree for this, and it was usually summer, the etchings were soon covered by sap, and the record became, quote, invisible, except to one accustomed to translating such hieroglyphics with the aid of a good magnifying glass, unquote. While many were happy to have a government surveyor sort out the mess, some of the wilder miners and beneficiaries of how the dust had settled after the miners' meeting were definitely not. Friends warned Ogilvy to be careful of getting shot, but he decided to go ahead anyway, judging it was mostly just people letting off steam. When he came to the claim of one of the wilder talkers, Ogilvy discovered his baseline ran right into the man's cabin, and he had to locate his transit on the man's cabin roof to continue his work. The man came outside and asked what Ogilvy was doing. Ogilvy explained. The man thought about it for a minute, and then invited Ogilvy inside for dinner. Ogilvy describes the scene. Quote, during the meal, he inquired if I were going to put him off the claim he was on, and, to my great surprise, when I told him I was, he accepted the dictum very gracefully and asked me what I would advise him to do in the future, unquote. The miner knew he could either try to find another creek with no claims on it or claim the fraction, which is what they called the often pie-shaped pieces of land that ended up between the claims when surveyors cleaned up the lines after the first rough-and-ready staking rush. And Ogilvy's survey had indeed revealed that, when the nearby claims were made the right size, there was a fraction available. Ogilvy advised the miner to take the fraction, and the man staked it immediately. Some fractions, even though smaller than a regular claim, turned out to be fantastically wealthy. 
Ogilvy's survey also discovered a discrepancy between the claims 2 and 3 above discovery on Bonanza Creek. When the claims were properly measured, there turned out to be a small, wedge-shaped fraction of land left over. Ogilvy was an honest man and, as a government surveyor, couldn't claim it. So a chain man named Dick Lowe on his survey crew did. The so-called Lowe fraction was just 86 feet wide, but it yielded $400,000, or over $10 million in today's money. Ogilvy was renowned for his honesty and fairness, and as a surveyor, he was a stickler for rules and official process. However, he also knew that being thousands of miles from civilization meant that he had to be pragmatic. Once, at the end of a long day surveying across a couple of the richest claims on Bonanza, he was doing the math in a miner's cabin, surrounded by his assistants, and miners worried their claim boundaries might move when he was finished his math. And sure enough, when he did the calculations, he discovered that a mistake had been made and an unclaimed fraction existed. It was 41 feet, 6 inches wide, and located on possibly the richest claim on the richest creek in the Klondike. Single pans of gold, two shovels of dirt, had been found with $500. $100 pans were not uncommon. Making it even more complicated, the miners on the claim had been doing all their work on the part of the claim that was really a fraction. If Ogilvy let all this be known, in a cabin filled with miners and assistants, a dozen surveying assistants or other miners might try to stake it simultaneously. The result would be violence and endless litigation. So, instead, he waited for a chance to take the claim owner aside and quietly suggested he find a trusted friend to claim it, all of which happened that very night. Meanwhile, the staking madness continued up creeks and tributaries, with occasional discoveries of fractions or lapsed claims provoking moments of madness. One of the most famous incidents occurred when a claim lapsed on Upper Bonanza due to the owner being out of the Yukon and having failed to do the paperwork by the deadline. A dozen or more prospectors decided to restake it. A Northwest Mounted Police officer was sent to be on hand. When the officer said it was midnight on the day in question, Whoever staked the claim and made the 60-plus-mile journey to the agent's office in 40 Mile would have it. Seeing what was about to happen, all but a Canadian and a Swede dropped out. These two made their posts and, at midnight, hammered in the first one. Then they dashed the 500 feet along the claim. And after that, the race to Dawson was on. They raced on foot, neck and neck, to Dawson, where they grabbed food and friends provided dog sleds. Then they raced down the river to 40 Mile. Within a couple of miles of 40 Mile, the Canadians' dogs began to slow. No amount of encouragement or whipping could make them go faster. The Canadian jumped off his sled and raced on foot. The Swede's dogs were failing too, so he jumped off his sled as well. They went neck and neck through the gate. The Swede headed for the biggest building, while the Canadian knew the recorder's office was on the right-hand side. Quote, And letting the Swede pass, he turned sharply to the right, reached the office door, opened it, but was unable to raise his foot above the threshold, about six inches high, and fell prone on the floor across it, shouting as he did so, Sixty above of Bonanza! The Swede arrived seconds later. In the end, the agent suggested they divide the claim, which they did. They returned to Bonanza to prepare to mine the land. But when the spring thaw came, the claim turned out to be worthless. Little gold was found higher than 42 above, despite the madcap race in the middle of winter. 
After the initial staking boom shot up Bonanza and its famous tributary, El Dorado, miners settled down to figure out what to do next. With the ground frozen, it was hard to know exactly how much gold you might be sitting on. Some decided to sell out while the mania was, they thought, at its peak. So some claims changed hands for sums that seemed excessive at the time, but would look like downright bargains later. Kesh, Kagooks, Carmack, and Shatla, and others, settled down to work at mining their claims, something we'll get into in more detail in future episodes. And the merchants, con artists, and future dancehall girls who made Dawson famous were already arriving and getting ready to do business. You might be wondering during all this what happened to Bob Henderson, the prospector who had spent two years of his life slogging around the district, talking it up to everyone he met, and insulting Carmack and his First Nations friends. Well, it seems that Carmack never did send word back over the hills that he'd struck it rich. Henderson kept toiling away on Goldbottom Creek. At one point, some miners even passed by, and they were in a hurry. They told Henderson they were headed for Bonanza Creek, which Henderson had never heard of. Remember, it was still called Rabbit Creek to him. Not wanting to seem ignorant, Henderson didn't ask any more questions and didn't find out that Rabbit Creek, just over the ridge, was the site of a staking frenzy. To make matters worse, it turned out that another man named Hunker beat Henderson to the recorder's office in Forty Mile. He named Goldbottom Creek as Hunker Creek and was awarded both his claims and the bonus claim for discovery. When everything got sorted out, Henderson would be left with one claim on Hunker of middling value and a lifetime sense of bitterness. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it sure would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. Thank you.